Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. You're sitting there minding your own business when the pain starts to build. A headache, or better yet, a migraine. Maybe this is the third one this month. Maybe it's the fourth. Maybe you knew this one was coming because there were clues, like irritability, or visual and auditory clues, like what doctors might call an aura. Maybe you have specific migraine triggers, like lack of sleep or work-related stress. If you suffer from migraines, chances are you've been down this road before and you know this means you're going to be uncomfortable for the next few hours of your life. But fear not, migraine sufferer. We are here to help. Today's conversation is all about migraines. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin, and my goal is to help you and your family live a smarter, healthier life. In today's podcast, the topic is headaches, specifically migraine headaches. And our guest on today's podcast is a neurologist from Beaumont, Dr. Matt Voci. Matt is a board-certified neurologist. He did his training at university hospitals in Cleveland, home of Case Western University. He has extensive clinical experience managing and treating migraines and other neurological conditions in adult patients. Along the way, we'll hit on several things such as what is a migraine and what distinguishes a migraine from a different type of headache. We'll talk about why migraines happen. In other words, what is the physiology behind migraines? And we'll talk about some important treatment and prevention strategies to help migraine sufferers. And with that, I will introduce our guest, Dr. Matt Voci. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. So Matt, start us off right. We've all had a headache at one time or another in our life. How do we tell the difference between a migraine and any other type of headache out there? So historically, um, in the past, we've tried to separate headache types out because I guess as physicians, that's what we do. We try to make as many divisions as possible to try to simplify things. But really, the best uh, way is to appreciate that different headache types probably have more in common than they do in difference. But the three major types are migraine, tension headache, and sinus headache. So sinus, let's start with that because that's the easiest one. It is the most over-called, over-diagnosed condition. According to American Headache Society's standards, you have to have purulent discharge from your nasal cavity to really qualify for a sinus headache diagnosis. And the reason it is over-called is that if you look at migraine sufferers, 80% will have sinus symptomatology, Mm. not due to sinus infection. But it does lead to an overuse of prescribing of sinus antibiotics or antibiotics in general, to treat what really isn't a sinus infection. Near and dear to my heart. Yes, it is. That's why I brought it up. (laughs) So uh, the second uh, and probably the most common type of headache is one that we've called tension headache. And tension headaches really have a lot to do uh, and a lot in common with migraine headaches. Um, That is described more as a pressure-type sensation. And if you think back to, um, at least for those in medicine, think to anatomy or for those of you not in medicine, your skull is surrounded by band-like radial muscles that stretch around the head. Uh, Those muscles get their innervation from the upper cervical spine, from C1, C2, and C3. So the neck plays an intimate role in generating headaches. When the neck is irritated, the nerves uh, that supply the scalp muscles, C1, C2, C3, get irritable as well, and those muscles spasm and contract. And that's Mm. why it feels like you have a band around your head, or your head's in a vice, or you feel like it's being crushed in. Hence, the, uh, the term tension headache is related to muscle tension. Is that where that name comes from? Correct, okay. correct. I prefer the term cervicogenic 
because to me it implies its origin. It's the cervical spine. So okay. there's a lot of important anatomy between the skull and the, and the cervical spine and the shoulder. Uh, we don't pay attention to them at all. Um, and in this day and age of cell phones and computer terminals, uh, we are destroying our necks. Mm. Uh, so uh, physical therapy towards the neck will do a lot to help a lot of chronic headache sufferers. Excellent point. But the big one here is migraine. Um, and so migraine is um, its an interesting condition. Uh, for those of you who had it and I have migraine headaches, uh, it is a throbbing, pounding, pulsating headache. The word migraine comes from a famous French physician, Charcot, who derived the term from the French version of hemicranial. He just removed a few of the letters in front and at the end and came up with migraine. Hmm because that's what the French do. <laughs> so, um, but, so migraine derives from hemicrania because classically we viewed migraines as one-sided headaches. Okay. But again, for mo uh, most migraine sufferers, you know, it doesn't have to be one-sided. But when it is and when it's throbbing, you know more than likely this is a migraine headache. And then you get all the other associated symptomatology, the nausea, sometimes throwing up or emesis. Uh, people may get the, the noise and, and light irritation. There's a lot of autonomic dysfunction during a migraine attack, um, hence the nausea component. Uh, you get autonomic impairment, so you get gastric stasis. And that's why a lot of medicines won't work in a migraine sufferer because there's no contractility occurring in your stomach. So pills just sit there eroding your gastric mucosa hmm. because there's no churning of the pill. And that has led to the development of medicines that bypass that gastric stasis issue. Interesting. We'll, talk, we'll definitely get into treatments for sure. Yep. I want to ask you a question, though. Does the recurrence or the, the, um, the, the recurrent nature of the headache have anything to do, whether it's a migraine headache or whether it's a tension headache or some other type? So, um, I mean, technically all headaches are recurrent, um, but uh, by, by definition, a migraine is a recurring headache. Uh, it is the tension or cervicogenic headaches that tend to be the ones uh, where someone comes in saying they've had a continuous headache for days on end or mm. weeks on end, um, that, that is unusual for a migraine to be persistent 24-7. So if a patient were to say to me, I get, I get five to seven headaches a month, this is something that I deal with all the time, is that a clue or is that a misleader? No, it's an important clue in that Again, if you go to the characteristics and can identify a pulsating nature to the headache, hmm. uh, the lights and noise bothering you, the nausea, um, one-sided, maybe two-sided, sinus symptomatology, you know it's a migraine. The fact that it's that frequent um, and you know, any more than four headaches a month is considered a moderate headache sufferer. Okay. Uh, when you get that many headaches, um, you and your physician should be really trying to identify why you're getting so many headaches. Absolutely. Otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, we get into the pattern of you know throwing pills at the patient to medicate the patient without finding the source of the problem. Yeah, totally agree. Let's talk a little bit about the physiology, um, or what you and I would call the pathophysiology behind migraines. In other words, what's going on inside the body when this happens? So it is still um, the elusive um, thing as to what it is that initially triggers the migraine headache. But we know that it is a dysfunction of neurochemicals in the brain, especially in a part of the brain that we call the trigeminovascular pathway. So the trigeminal nerve is one of our brainstem nerves, uh, and it controls um, muscles of the face, sensation to the face. Uh, but it also plays a um, role in the autonomic control from the brainstem, hence um, the reason why you get 
autonomic impairment in a migraine headache, this trigeminal nerve complex um, regulates the autonomic output of the brainstem. Autonomic, uh, let's clarify this for the listeners, autonomic, autonomic meaning, you know, internal organ dysfunction related type things. Right. So the autonomic nervous system, it controls all the things we don't pay attention to. Right. Like your heart rate, your gastric motility, uh, your respiratory rate, um, all those things. Sure. So this trigeminal nerve um, system also subserves the uh, innervation to the covering of the brain, something that we call the meningeal surface, and that is the vascular territory of the brain that is believed to activate during a migraine attack from the neurochemicals released. And it is now appreciated that this one chemical that we call CGRP, which is also stands for calcitonin gene-related peptide, mm -hmm. is, and it's been known for 20 years that this is the culprit chemical that is being released to trigger the migraine. It just took 20 years to get a good therapy for it. Um, so when this gets released, you get dilation of the vessels, which leads to the throbbing, pounding component of the headache. The sinus pathology comes from the fact that most of the mucosal lining of your sinuses in your face and head are innervated by the second branch of the trigeminal nerve. Hmm. So this is why all these symptoms we talked about earlier make sense anatomically with this trigeminal nerve system. Right. It makes sense now because it's that that would explain the sort of hemi cranial or half of your head nature of it. Correct. Right? It would explain the location, which right. is... There's one on each side of the head, so yep. that explains why it is one-sided predominantly, but again, it can be double-sided. Sure, sure. Just so I'm clear, I want to kind of go retrace over some of those steps. So it's, an, it's primarily an issue of nerve function or dysfunction, but the intermediary there is blood vessel Correct. issues, right? And the predominant problem here is you get blood vessel dilation. Correct. And this is what has led to the historic medicines in migraine therapy. Initially, the ergotamines, which are potent vasoconstricting okay. uh, vessel uh, medicines. Uh, caffeine uh, is often used as a, a method of aborting a migraine headache. Caffeine is, a, is also a blood vessel constrictor. And then about uh, 25, 30 years ago, we had the triptans, mm -hmm. uh, imitrex or sumatriptan being the first one, also a very potent blood vessel constrictor. So we, we've known for a long time that blood vessels were an integral part. Now we're starting to understand that there are other factors here that are influencing the blood vessels. Correct. So okay. the, the initial treatments were directed at the end of the effect. Now the treatments are going towards the beginning of the effect, targeting this molecule CGRP Got that it. we know leads to the vasodilation. Got it. Put a pin in that CGRP because I think we're going to definitely talk about that. Yes. Let me ask you a question. Is there a genetic component to migraines? Yes, there is. Uh, and my daughters will attest to that because <laughs> they blame me for that. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, there is a, definitely a genetic component. Uh, it does not follow strict uh, uh, dominant recessive patterns. So, but um, having a parent with um, migraine and inevitably the uh, offspring will have a reasonable chance of having migraine headaches. So it does tend to run in families. Well, that is unfortunate for children of migraine sufferers, I suppose. Um, can you give me a number? I mean, is this uh, 20%, 40%, you know, somewhere in between? I would say it's probably around 30% of okay. folks. So, and the reason it doesn't follow strict uh, what we call Mendelian inheritance patterns, uh, the recessive dominant, is more than likely there's multiple factors that sure. uh, or genetic factors that can trigger 
abnormalities in this trigeminal nerve pathway. Okay. So it's probably there's probably not a migraine gene. There's multiple genes that a dysfunction of which can trigger migraine headaches. Let's get into the particulars of migraines in a little bit more detail. So you've you've teed this up for us pretty good. You've talked about um, how it can be one-sided or two-sided. You've talked about the the uh, the idea of nerve dysregulation, blood vessels. Talk about some of the features that we discuss clinically, like the aura. So I've heard of migraine sufferers will often have an aura. What is an aura and what does that mean to a patient? Sure. So migraine aura is a, um, it, it occurs in classic migraine, which is about 10% of migraine sufferers. Um, so I'm not in that 10%. I'm in the 90% who get the common migraine. So we don't get auras. Okay. But when you get an aura, I mean, one, it's nice because you know the migraine's coming. So you can quickly run, get medication, and abort it. Uh, the aura can take on a whole host of different pathologies. They do tend to be visual. So you may get a positive phenomenon like flashes of light, bright lights. The classic one are the zigzag lines that we call fortification spectra. That term derives from the fact that the zigzag pattern resembles the uh, zigzag patterns of old uh, uh, forts around ancient cities. Hmm. When you looked at those maps of old cities, they would have a zigzag wall defense. Hmm. So that's where the term fortification spectra occurs. Interesting. It is. It is, yes. Uh, Some people will lose vision or things will will dim or they'll lose color. So you can get a whole host of pathology. and for most of them, it will be followed by a headache. Sometimes you just get the aura without the migraine. That's nice, but most of the times it will occur with the migraine. Is there a time frame we're looking at here? Is this hours, days? It is variable. No, but it is, it is not that long. It is usually uh, probably within 10 minutes to 60 minutes that they will uh, then be followed by the headache. And how long does the headache typically last for a migraine sufferer? So that is all over the board. Mm-hmm. It can be hours. It can be days. Uh, most migraineurs know that if they have no medicine, they know historically if they go to bed, sleep will inevitably eliminate the migraine. Okay. And most migraineurs know uh, they seek a dark room, they seek quiet, and they try to go to sleep. Most of the time then when they wake up, the headache will be gone. But with medication, now we have a very good chance of aborting that headache within 10 to 20 minutes. So, Matt, I'm thinking about... Um patients or friends or people that I know that will commonly experience their migraines on the weekend. In other words, they'll they'll have a long, you know, productive week of work and then here comes the weekend and boom, that's when the migraine tends to hit them. Is there any relationship there? So historically, our experience has been that these folks who get this restful weekend migraine um, it's usually occurring because, yes, it was a stressful week, and they've been living off caffeine to get their work done, and then the weekend comes, and they don't get to their coffee at the usual time. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a caffeine withdrawal headache. And, and caffeine plus the stress of the work week. Correct. Double so, whammy. Right. So caffeine is often considered a um, headache-inducing agent. Um, but, you know, why do we use caffeine and Excedrin to treat um, migraine sufferers. So if, if you're not an overuser of caffeine, then caffeine is a very good abortive agent to knock out a headache. It is the people who take lots of it and then all of a sudden stop who get the caffeine withdrawal. And they'll know once they get their cup of um, coffee down that the headache will likely start to quiet down. 
But yes, it is more, and that's it, that situation is most likely going to be a caffeine withdrawal effect. Okay. You talked about autonomic uh, symptoms as well. What are some of the symptoms that go along with that? I think you mentioned some gastric-related uh, issues. What else? Right. So the gastric ones are the prominent ones because that also impacts your ability to absorb the medication mm. gastrointestinally. Uh, the sinus uh, pathology that occurs, the congestion, also uh, the tearing in the eyes. You may get a dilation of the uh, of the um, of your lens. So all those are autonomic impairments that you can see. Heart rate issues. Heart rate typically does not occur as a neurologic accompaniment to a migraine. Uh, vertigo sometimes does. Okay. I know our ear, nose, and throat colleagues um, are. Uh, very keen on vertiginous migraine. What are some common precipitants to migraines? So w- what are the, the triggers that we talk about the most? Well, so you mentioned stress. Um, yes, yeah, so stress, uh, lack of you know, physical, emotional, lack of sleep. Uh, we don't know why that triggers a migraine, but they are common culprits. I know for me, if I get too many phone calls at night from the hospital, the next morning I will invariably have a headache, just a hint out there. Um, so... Um, but uh, there are many food allergies. Um, okay. The dominant ones are foods that contain nitrates or sulfites because those vasodilate. Such as I'm th- nitrates. Well, I'm thinking so, of wine, right? That's the one that well, pops right into my head. Correct. And um, uh, being of Italian descent, so salami with all the you know nitrates in that uh, sure. proce- you know, processed meats um, will do that. Some cheeses are also cheeses, uh, yeah. potent in that regard. But really, uh, it is an extensive list of foods um, that can cause it. Uh, MSG is another big culprit, monosodium glutamate, sure. uh, common in Chinese food. I know when I was a, a teenager and ate at a Chinese restaurant for the first time, I still remember it because I really got a good headache from that. Hmm. So, but it's very variable. So, you know, I can eat all the salami in the world and not get a headache, but I touch MSG and I'm down and out. So triggers triggers for one not necessarily triggers for another. We're sort of all over the place. Correct. And, um, you know, chocolate's also in that category. I mean, there's a whole host of things, but, you know, especially in, in kids, and I, I've, you know, when I've had younger patients, parents who have put them on a healthy diet, so I, I don't make friends with the kid, but, uh, <laughs> but you go on a healthy diet, you avoid canned, you know, canned or prepared, uh, vegetables and, and food, you eat, eat natural. For a lot of them, it takes away the headache. I've read that hormones can play a big role in, in migraine headaches as well. Yes, and unfortunately for women who are more prone to get migraines than men, uh, the hormonal component is huge. Hmm. Uh, so there are women who have migraines predominantly with their menstrual cycle, so we call that menstrual migraine. Uh, and then some women will get it not just with the menses, but apart from when they're having their menstrual cycle. So we call that menstrual-associated migraine. Um, That does open up the possibility of treatment options that you can use just during the week of their menses. So oftentimes we'll we'll use anti-inflammatory medications, Motrin, Ibuprofen, Aleve, um, starting a a few days before their cycle begins and continuing through the duration of the cycle. So yes, hormones do play a role, but it uh, it is the sex hormones that play that role. And uh, so men don't experience that phenomenon. I'm going to jump a little bit to uh, how you would diagnose a migraine. So you as a neurologist, I imagine this is 
sort of bread and butter for you. You probably see a lot of headaches and you probably see a lot of migraine sufferers. So walk me through how you would diagnose a patient as a migraine sufferer. So it is history, history, history. Mm-hmm. That is the most important part. Uh, you identify the, you know, the typical symptomatology of a migraine headache. But in our situation, we ha- also, because I tend to see more complicated migraine sufferers, my focus is on why are they having so many headaches. So the exam is focused on the head, neck, and shoulder region to see if there's any pathology there on the exam. We look for uneven shoulders, spastic neck muscles. Um, and then in the concern that maybe there's something not good going on in the brain, we look for localized changes on the exam. Are there signs of subtle weakness on one side or the other? Hmm. So every headache sufferer deserves to be imaged at some point at, at the onset, um, either with a CAT scan, preferably an MRI scan. Um, so that would be ba- the basic workup, but it really is the history. If you are seeing someone who is having a if they've been a stable headache sufferer and all of a sudden have an escalation in headaches or um, a change in the in the pattern uh, or the intensity, um, then these are people who need to be imaged again to make sure nothing abnormal is going on. And by abnormal, is there a blood clot? Is there a, a mass or tumor or something else going on? Does every migraine sufferer need to have some type of imaging like a CAT scan or MRI? In my view, at some point, yes, you should get imaged because okay. at, at some point, there's always going to be a start to your headache. Right. So, therefore, and a new headache warrants an evaluation. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. Makes sense. Um, so, uh, I know it's not an absolute um, requirement from American Headache Society standards, but the reality of it is, in this day and age, um, you want to make sure nothing abnormal is going on there. And 30 years of doing this, I've seen many abnormalities that surprised me. So. I understand. Yeah, better safe than sorry. Are are you using some type of an inventory? Is there a, a checklist? Is there a scoring system? You know, how do you, you know, I imagine this is probably, there's more art than science to some of this stuff, but um, how do you get into the nuts and bolts and saying, yep, this one's a migraine. Nope, that one's not a migraine. So it, it really is the history. I mean, it, yeah. it, and if you can identify that there is in an existing migraine or that something is different, then these are people who warrant attention, mm-hmm. you know, which means imaging. Otherwise, you know, you look for the, the pounding, throbbing component. You look for the one or both side episodic nature, the visual issues, the noise, and we call it photophobia, phonophobia, the lights and noise bothering you. And the fact that when they go to bed, they know they'll wake up without the headache. That is classic, typical migraine pathology. Now we're going to dive into treatment. So you've given us a lot of good intel here on what a migraine is, and you've talked about the physiology, you've talked about the precipitants, the diagnosis. Now we're into treatment, and you've tipped off a few things, and I want to go back and and touch on those. You mentioned things that work on the blood vessels, so vasoconstrictors, since dilation is a problem. Correct. So you mentioned caffeine, you mentioned triptans. What else is out there? Well, there's an older class of drugs called ergotamines, uh, which are very potent uh, constrictors. They fell out of vogue because they also bind to coronary receptors in the heart. Uh, so some people get chest pain, which is basically angina. They're, <laughs> they're going to get a heart attack. And heart attacks can happen with these medications. If you are an existing person who, who has vascular disease, these are not good medicines for you. You don't want to use vasoconstrictors. Okay. And they are 
working, um, there is a new molecule under study right now that has shown almost no vasoconstrictive capacity yet is able to abort migraines. So we'll be eager to have that available. But, um, you know, you can use simple over-the-counter stuff. Excedrin has 65 milligrams of caffeine per tablet. A cup of coffee is about 40. Uh, that's a good hit of caffeine. It does not make for a good nighttime drug, obviously. <laughs> uh, but it also has 250 of aspirin, 250 of Tylenol. There's your anti-inflammatory uh, medication. Okay. So that's a simple option. Even for newly diagnosed headache sufferers, just you know, simple anti-inflammatories, Motrin, ibuprofen, Aleve, drugs like that can be effective at aborting headache. They have no vasoconstrictive component. It's all anti-inflammatory, which tells us that you know migraine isn't just a vasoconstrictive effect. There is a um, inflammatory component to it as well. Um, so, with drugs like uh, sumatriptan, which is uh, was the first of the triptan class of drugs that are vasoconstrictive agents. Um, the company that first made it uh, came out with a new version that combined it with 500 milligrams of naproxen. Hmm. So you got now an anti-inflammatory, an anti-inflammatory right. right, with the vasoconstricting. So we will tend to offer patients a combination of va- a vasoconstricting agent with an anti-inflammatory agent to knock the headache down. Talk about this newer um, target molecule that you mentioned earlier and what some of the therapies are directed at that. Okay, so we did talk about CGRP, which mm-hmm. again, calcitonin gene-related peptide. Uh, again, 20-some years we've known it played a role, but it has been an elusive target to hit pharmacologically. Um, trying to make uh, re- agents that block the receptor or block the molecule just uh, failed from side effects. The uh, latest approach is the benefit of all the lovely new technologies. So now they directed and made monoclonal antibodies against the receptor and the the, the chemical, the ligand, the CGRP molecule. Okay. So these are um, uh, a new class of drugs that came out last June of 2018. Uh, they are administered once a month as a subcutaneous injection, and for half the population who goes on them, they'll experience a 50% reduction in headaches. Another 25% will achieve an additional 25% of headache reduction. In our experience, we've had people eliminate their headaches with the medication. Wow. Um, so they are a, um, a just an awesome class of medications. They have, I think, surpassed our expectations of what they would do. Um, so it, it, it is nice to have those. Now, just by the sound of it, I, I'm, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but, but just by the sound of it, it sounds like this is not a first-line option at this point in time. It, it sounds like it's probably something, you know, given the the logistics of it, the fact that it's a new medication, and the fact that it's an injectable. I'm just guessing, but... So, surprisingly, um, insurance companies haven't jumped on a, you know, wait a minute, we you know, you got to try other stuff first before you do this. Hmm. Uh, that will likely change. Uh, in December of last year, so just th- th- two months ago, uh, the American Headache Society, in an effort to try to help figure out where to position these medications, did put out a position statement, 18 pages long, but nonetheless it was a position statement, which placed these CGRP monoclonal antibodies uh, as basically a second-line approach. They, okay. would like, they would like you to fail two oral preventative agents, uh, each at a six-week trial. Um, and my guess is the insurance industry will adopt that as their standard. Okay. But until they do, we actually have used these molecules first line. Understood. For a once a month um, molecule uh, to be injected on, into you, it's a not a bad thing because the oral 
preventative drugs are complicated and they carry a lot of baggage with them. They have a lot of side effects. Most young folks don't want to deal with that stuff. These include beta blockers, which slow people down, um, certain antidepressants, which, you know, um, come with side effects as well. Uh, Depakote, a potent uh, anti-seizure medication, which has a whole host of side effects. And, um, Another drug, Tapiramate, which is an anti-seizure drug, that, that, is the, that is the number one utilized preventative oral agent. But it, too, has issues. Okay. Matt, talk for just a minute about some non-medication-based ways for migraine sufferers or headache sufferers to manage their chronic headaches. So um, yeah, I am a big believer in trying not to over-medicate patients. So uh, we had talked about preventative pharmacologic options, uh, but there are also non-pharmacologic pharmacologic approaches one can take. Um, and we talked about the head, neck, and shoulder playing a role, the anatomy of that, how it uh, involves the upper cervical spine. Yep. So physical therapy is very good. And we encourage folks that we see with chronic headaches to go to a physical therapist to learn neck stretches and exercise to do to relax that. In my own experience, um, when I after I turned fifty, I started doing yoga at the bequest of my wife and kids, <laughs> um, and you know it was a fun thing to do. I enjoy it. It's my once uh, one day of the week peaceful moment that I get to regroup my thoughts. But about three or four months into it, I noticed that my headache frequency had decreased. I was using less Excedrin and less other medications, huh. and That's I began to yeah it, it is, and I began to think about it and realize. It, it's the neck. It's the neck, head, and shoulder. And, and it, for those who do yoga or if you haven't done yoga, um, the whole point of yoga is not just mental balance but physical balance. And it's all about restoring balance between the right and left sides of the body. So now when I see patients in the office with chronic headache, I can pretty much tell you 10 out of 10 of them. I look at their shoulders. One is higher than the other. Their posture's off. And it's, it's the neck. Sure. So there's a there's a relaxation component from a musculoskeletal perspective, but there's also a psychological benefit there too in terms of stress reduction. I, I can see that. Correct. Man, I got just one more question for you. And, it, you know, it's an important question. When should a patient really be concerned? In other words, you know, do not do not pass go, go directly to the ER, or go directly to your doctor. When When should a headache raise that alarm? So we have a adage in medicine it's if it's your first or worst go to the emergency room so okay. uh so if, if you're an established headache patient and now you have a new headache well that's a first uh if it's your worst headache yes don't take chances uh, again the worrisome things that we need to be concerned about in going on inside your brain are is there a, you know an aneurysm that's rupturing or is mm-hmm. there a mass or tumor there so uh, any of those things we need to be concerned about. So first or worst, or if you notice any localized symptoms, so you're weak on one side or the other, yep. um, please get to the hospital. Good advice. That's about all the information we have time for today. I want to thank the good Dr. Voci for being my guest on the podcast. Matt, any final thoughts you want to share? Thank you for having me here. And headaches are easy to manage, just but work with your doctor on them. I appreciate that. I also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. Dr. Shah Jahan and I are always scouting out the best questions for a future mailbag episode. And with that, we leave you today with this healthy thought. The first step to getting relief from migraine headaches is understanding what a migraine is and what makes it different from another type of headache. 
Migraines are frequently recurrent and they often have very specific predisposing factors or triggers. Once diagnosed, there are plenty of ways to help get control of migraines. If you listen to this podcast and you think you might be a migraine sufferer, talk to your doctor about it and see if treatment may be right for you. Thank you. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast. 